0: As we come to your word, I pray that each one in here would endeavor to be a disciple. Those who are called to be with you. Those who are called to proclaim and herald the good news. Those with whom you have entrusted your authority. And that we would come to your word, not just merely saying, okay, Lord, entertain us for an hour, or let's hear what Britt has to say, but we would come saying, God, change me, transform me. Do a deep and powerful work in me for your glory. Father. As we come into your house this morning. We are ever aware of our unworthiness. We are ever aware of our humanity. We are ever aware of the areas that we lack. But we understand, Jesus, that you are worthy and we are in you. We understand that you became a man that you might save us in our fallen humanity. And now we are placed in the heavenlies in you. And so knowing that, make us like you in this lifetime. Transform us. Make us more like you that we might lead more people to you. And so as we've opened our Bibles, God, please, now, open our hearts. Protect us from distraction. We pray that you would destroy the work of the enemy who would want to just tell lies in this place and distract and confuse, that our hearts and our minds and our spirits would be attentive and given wholly to you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see here that Jesus went up on the mountain now in our text, and we're told uh, in the parallel text in the book of Luke, that as He went up on the mountain, He prayed all night. And after being up on the mountain, communing with the Lord and praying all night, He appointed the twelve. The twelve who were and would continue to grow as disciples and the twelve whom he would also appoint as apostles. Some of the ancient manuscripts include the phrase appointed them as apostles. Some of them don't. And so some of the translations you have before you include that phrase, that he called them apostles, and some don't. If you have the NIV, it's included there that they were called apostles. If you have the New American Standard, it's placed in your margin. It doesn't really matter per se, because we know that these men whom he called, that they were indeed apostles, Apostle merely means one who is sent, but we know that the church was founded upon the apostles, that is, as they went forward with the authoritative word of God, it is these very men who, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, were called and appointed and anointed to carry on the work of the kingdom, the work of God. But I want to focus this morning not on their apostleship, but on the fact that they are disciples. And as they are disciples, they share certain characteristics that are to be found in everyone that is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Certain realities, certain attributes, I would even say certain requirements, and certainly I would say certain privileges for all those who would call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ as these men were. Now I want us to narrow in on the word disciple and have an idea of what it means. First, we need to distinguish the word disciple from merely Christianity or believer. There's a difference between just being a Christian, as it has its various connotations today, or just being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ from being an actual disciple of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, the choice word of the Holy Spirit to describe followers of Christ Jesus is disciple. We find the word disciple used in the New Testament to describe the followers of Jesus Christ 259 times. Only three times do we hear the word Christian used in the New Testament to describe what we ought to be, and only twice are we described as believers. So overwhelmingly so, it becomes clear that the Holy Spirit intends that we are to be known as and functioning as disciples of Jesus Christ and not merely believers in Jesus Christ. Now let me begin to accentuate the difference. Here's what it means to be a disciple. In the basic sense, a disciple is a learner. That's the basic meaning of the word, a learner. But in the Christian context of the New Testament, it is a learner who accepts the teachings of Christ, not only in belief, but in lifestyle. That is to say, a disciple is one who is intent on learning and then making that which he or she learns the basis for their conduct. They are wanting to not only learn from God, but they are wanting to put into practice that which they learn daily. For the disciple, reading the Bible is a whole different trip. It's a whole different game. Hearing the preaching of the Bible, coming to the church, is a whole different thing than it is for merely the believer or the nominal Christian. The nominal Christian could come to church Sunday after Sunday and hear the scriptures properly expounded, hear the correct dividing of the word of God. They could even read the word of God for their own, and yet there is not an effectual change in their lives. They are not willing immediately upon hearing to adjust their conduct, to make changes in their life. But the disciple. When he reads the word of God, he sees, what, well, this is what God says, and so this is what I'm going to do. This is the conduct of Jesus, so this ought to be the conduct of me. These are the precepts of God, so this ought to be what I strive for and what I move toward and how I allow God to work in my life. And so it is learning with the intent or purpose of obeying what is learned. And discipleship, as opposed to easy believism, requires some commitment on behalf of you and on behalf of myself. It involves a deliberate choice. Speak about that in a minute. It involves a definite denial of what we will mention in a minute. And it involves determined obedience. Consider what Jesus had to say about discipleship as we turn now to Luke chapter 14. Keep a finger on Mark 3 because we'll be back, but go to Luke 14 with me. Luke 14, Jesus speaks here very clearly about discipleship or being a disciple, starting in verse 25 of Luke 14. It reads there, Now great multitudes were going along with Jesus. Think about that for a minute. Great multitudes were going along with Jesus. There were a lot that said, Hey, this Jesus thing is cool, and yeah, we could roll along with this for a while. As many Christians do today, and non-Christians alike. And Jesus turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31, or what king, when he has set out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. Gee whiz. What in the world does this mean? Well, I would forward to you today that it means exactly what it says. Jesus said, no one is worthy of me. He phrases it differently in a different gospel. No one is worthy of coming unto me. No one can be my disciple unless they hate their father and their mother and their wife and their children. Oh man, now we've got a problem. We know that elsewhere throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that God teaches us to love our wife even as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her, that we are to love and cherish our children, that they are gifts from God, and that we are to honor and obey our parents. So certainly Jesus Christ cannot mean in the sense that we think of it that we are to hate our fathers and mothers and wives and children. It's not that we go to them and go, oh, mom, I despise you now because I love Jesus. Not at all. That's not what the Lord means. But the Lord does mean that our relationship with Him is to take priority over every earthly relationship. It is to have absolute supremacy over every relationship in the earthly realm. That our love for our mothers and our fathers and our brothers and our sisters and our wives and our husbands and our children are to pale in comparison to our love for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if that is not the love that you have for me, then you cannot be called my disciple. That is why I must pray continually, Lord, increase my love for you. I am a wicked and sinful man. I confess my lack of love. Lord, teach me to love you more. God will always answer that prayer. God honors that prayer. We'll look at a verse in Psalm 103 in a few minutes. It shows that God is not disgusted by that prayer nor surprised by that prayer. My mom taught me this lesson early on in life. I was, I don't know how old I was, mom, but I was a kid when you ask silly questions like you do. And I remember asking myself one, or asking my mom one time, mom, I think it must've been right when my little sister was born. I remember asking my mom, mom, do you love me more than anything in the world? Yes, son, I love you. No, mom, that's not what I mean. Do you love me the most? I'm your firstborn. Mom, I'm the greatest. You love me the most, don't you? It must have been when my sister Heidi was born. And I'll never forget what my mom said. She taught me the most profound lesson about true Christianity. She said, no, son, I love Jesus Christ the most and then your father and then you. Now, as a little kid, I was distraught. (laughs) I was destroyed. I was heartbroken. But as I began to mature mature into a young man, and I began to study Christianity and walk with the Lord, I never, ever forgot that. She taught me at an early age that Jesus is to be number one in my life, above and beyond every other earthly relationship. Now you know and I know that sometimes that could be a challenge and that people can become in our lives idols. That is why discipleship requires a deliberate choice. A conscious decision of placing Jesus above all else. That's different than just believing in him for salvation. It is the conscious decision of placing him above all else. Secondly, Jesus said there, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does that mean to carry a cross? In our culture today, in our Christianity, we've watered that down immensely, haven't we? You know, we wear crosses on our necks. Cross was, uh, A cross in that day was the worst uh, device ever created for torture and murder. We wear it around our neck like it's a pretty piece of jewelry. It is. It represents something. But in that day, there was no mistake what it meant. There was no mistake concerning its representation. If you saw somebody walking through Israel in that day or through Jerusalem carrying a cross, you knew that they were a dead man. They were carrying their cross for one purpose, to be nailed to it, that their life would end. There was no mistaking it. There was no mistaking in the mind of the followers of Jesus Christ what he meant when he said, if anyone wants to come after me, they must pick up their cross. Otherwise, they can't be my disciple. It means very simply and very succinctly and very importantly and profoundly that the disciples of Jesus Christ are called to deny themselves to die to self that we might be alive to Christ. Now we've talked about sufficiently many times that positionally when we become Christians, that is true. We are buried with Christ Jesus. We are identified with him in his death and we are risen to new life. So the old us is dead, but we must bring the practical in line with the positional. We must bring the daily life in line with a heavenly reality. And that means that we've got to die to self daily. And we've got to pray as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And this life I live, I live by faith unto him. Anything less than these things is not discipleship. You can be a believer in Christ Jesus. You can be born again. You can be saved. But you cannot be, by the definition of the Lord himself, a disciple. So it requires a deliberate choice, putting Jesus above all else, a definite denial of self, and a determined obedience. He speaks there in verse 28. that If anyone goes to build a tower, they first count the cost. And so Jesus was urging his disciples and you and I to count the cost of discipleship, to weigh these words of what Jesus said in the Bible and say, am I really up to this? Am I really willing to exalt him above all else and abase myself? Am I really willing to let him have the reins of my life and to fully surrender and to pick up my cross daily? He said, count the cost lest you fall short So we don't want to confuse being a disciple with merely being saved. Being saved is the easiest thing in the world because God has done all the wonderful and hard work. He sent His only begotten Son, born of a virgin, and He lived the perfect life that we wouldn't have to and then died that amazing death upon the cross and then rose again to new life to give us new life. And it says in Isaiah chapter 45, Look to me and be saved. Very simple. It says in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Very simple, very easy. God has already done the work. With that amazing death upon the cross, God does not now make it hard to be saved. But Jesus clearly, from the New Testament, requires different conditions for discipleship than he does merely for salvation. True discipleship is costly. And so the Lord presents it here as an option. He says, if any man would come after me. And there are Christians abounding within the church who either failing to count the cost, have gotten into discipleship and said, this is far too much for me and fallen away. Or they have counted it and deemed it too costly and never pursued discipleship. And so this morning we need to begin to weigh out in our own hearts and begin to count the cost these things that the Lord says and will say to us through his word in the coming weeks as we endeavor to study discipleship now over several weeks we need to count the cost we need to understand am I merely a believer or am I a true follower am i just playing through church or playing church and going through the motions do i just have fire insurance or am i sold out for my Jesus Am I wholly and fully committed? Is my will wholly consumed by His? Surely, being disciples is what God intends and desires for us to be. It is God's best and highest. It is what the church is intended to be. And being a disciple is what the church is is supposed to be making. It says in the Great Commission there in Matthew 28, go forward into all the world and make believers. No, it doesn't say that. It says there in Matthew 28, verse 19, go therefore into all the world and make Christians. No, it doesn't say that. It says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. And so we are all supposed to be disciples. We have the wonderful opportunity, the glorious privilege to be disciples, and the amazing privilege to be making disciples. But we need to begin to be cognizant of the difference thereof. J. Oswald Sanders has an amazing book called Spiritual Discipleship, and we read this in it. It says, this is a true calling and function of the church. It is the privilege and responsibility of the whole church to respond in obedience and give the whole gospel to the whole world. I not you to notice what he says there. He says, it is the privilege, yes indeed, it is the privilege and it is the responsibility of the whole church. Discipleship requires for us individual responsibility. Listen, friends, we here as a new church, we are desiring to build community, are we not? We want to build community. We want to have deep relationships with one another. We want to connect with one another on a profound level, on a deep level, on a spiritual level. We want to be able to labor together for the glory of God and for the kingdom of God. We want to develop a sense of community here. But a sense of community requires a couple things. One thing it requires is a common goal. A common goal. I would suggest to you from the word of God that the common goal for us needs to be that each one of us individually becomes a disciple of Christ Jesus. Not merely a believer, not merely a Sunday Christian, but a true disciple. And then secondly, community requires accountability. It requires a common goal and then accountability to attain to that goal. And I would suggest to each one of us that we ought to be accountable to one another for being true disciples of Christ Jesus. And here comes individual responsibility. I would ask that the Holy Spirit would just be able to go through every single... Row here and just speak to every individual heart and say, "Are you being responsible of the calling? are you, are you, are you are you? are you are you are you? are you? are you 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 are you? are you 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 are you?" all the way through the rows and say, Saints, are you being responsible to the church of God, to the spirit of God and the sense of community here and being a disciple of Jesus Christ as to merely being a believer? Now, we can only answer that for ourselves in the quietness of our own hearts. We can either say, yeah, I am pressing into that. I have bought into that vision of truly being a disciple. I am aware of the blessings that come in that, and I am pressing on toward that. Or we do what so much of Christianity does, and I would be heartbroken if I had to say the vast majority of Christianity does. And that is merely buy into an easy believism. That I'm saved and that's enough, that's fine. And, you know, from one point of view, it is. I mean, you have fire insurance. You're not going to hell. Hooray, hurrah, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God has more, that God has greater blessings. There are certain blessings that come to you just by being a member of the family of God. There are certain things that he will not deny us. Wonderful blessings. I will never deny my son food and clothing and shelter. These are blessings that he will have from my hand just because he's my child. But there are other things that he's got to walk in obedience to receive. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? There are certain ways that we've got to walk in obedience to the Lord to receive the fullness of the blessings that he has for us. And that is called discipleship. And so I would challenge us this morning. I would call us, I would exhort us to be disciples and not merely believers. Now let's look closer at what that means as we turn back to Mark chapter 3. Back in Mark chapter 3, we will highlight briefly Three realities of being a disciple you could call them attributes, characteristics, uh, responsibilities, privileges, but I thought i'd use the word reality. three realities of being a disciple it says in verse fourteen, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority over demons. So being a disciple involves a lot of things, but these three basic ones for this morning, being with Jesus, preaching for Jesus, and having the authority of Jesus. It all starts with the amazing reality that we are called above all else, and this is from which all else flows, that we are called to be with the living God that we are allowed to be, that we are privileged to be, that we are honored to be, that we ought to be overjoyed to be with the living God. It is a fool who says in their, in their heart, there is no God, the Psalms declared. It is a greater fool who knows that there is a God and does not want to draw near to him. When the way to communing with the Lord has been opened wide open through the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus called the disciples, he called them to be with him. It's reflected in the greatest commandment where Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment, being with him. It's interesting that the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 7 concerning the coming of the Messiah gave him that wonderful name, Emmanuel, that we've been speaking about so much during Christmas time. And that means God with us. And it says in John chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The purpose of the incarnation was that God might come and dwell among us. The purpose of the crucifixion was that we might go and dwell with him for eternity. So there is communion with God in this lifetime, but it is but a shadow of the communion with God in the life to come. Now, when we talk about being with Jesus, we're not talking merely about coming to church, though that's a wonderful thing, and we ought to do that. We're not talking merely about reading our Bibles in the morning. Though that is a glorious thing and we ought to do that. That is far more valuable in my estimation, by the way, than merely coming to church. I would release you that next week, if it rolls around to be Sunday morning and you have not opened the Word of God and been alone with God in His Word all week long, stay home. I guarantee you will be far more blessed to open up your Bible and just have it be you and Jesus Christ alone and learn directly from his Holy Spirit. I release you to do that. I challenge you to do that next week. If you haven't read your Bible by next Sunday morning, stay home and read your Bible. That'll be a great thing. And then when you start to read your Bible on a regular basis, church changes. Let me tell you, can anybody testify? Oh, church changes at that point. But I'm not talking merely about quiet time. I'm not talking merely about Bible reading, not merely about prayer, not merely about worship, though that is certainly communion with the Lord. But I am talking about a daily, all-consuming walk with God. We might call it abiding in Christ. We might call it the Spirit-filled life walking with God in every circumstance throughout the day, being reminded of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Being reminded of what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, do not set your mind on the things of earth, but set your mind on the things that are above where Christ is seated. It is a discipline of... Uh, for lack of a better phrase, practicing the presence of God, being aware that he is with you, that he dwells in you, that his Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he said, lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That whether we realize it or not, God is always with us. And God is always longing to draw near to you in intimacy more than I think we're aware of. We're told in the book of James, draw near to him and he will draw near to us. I simply think that we relegate God to a small part of our daily lives. That we relegate God to a small part of our hearts. That we give him just a part of our passion that people often look at God as just an add-on to our lives. Well, I've got this going in my life and I've got that going and I've got thus and so and I'll add a little Jesus and that'll be Sunday mornings and all right. And you can do that, but you will be getting gypped. You will be getting gypped because God has more for you. God wants to commune with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week until the rapture of the church. Paul painted an amazing picture of it when he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that we ought to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? It means that you never leave your house, that you are always in your house, on your knees, with your eyes closed, going, oh Lord, please, thus and so, this and that. No, that's not what it means. We can't do that. Gee, uh, even the word of God says, man shall eat by the sweat of his brow. The Bible declares we gotta have a job. We've got to go minister to people. We've got to do different things. It doesn't mean being locked in a room on your knees, though there's a time and place for that. It means always and forever talking to God in your daily life, letting Him be your best friend, allowing Him to be your companion, the one who is nearest to you, giving Him supremacy in your life. Saints, I will confess to you, it is not easy, but it is possible. It is not easy, but it is rewarding. It is not easy, but it is wonderful. To just begin to commune with God in the daily things, it will be hard because the world doesn't want you to do this. It will be hard because as we're told in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh wages war against the spirit. And it will be hard because Satan does not want you to do this. It will be hard because the love of the world... And the world and the enemy are like a fast-moving river just pulling us away, ever away from the things of God. And we realize that being disciples, if we are not forever swimming upstream, that we're losing ground and moving backwards. And so I would say we've got to kick against the flow of the world. We've got to kick against the schemes of the enemy. And we've got to press on towards the upward call of God in Christ Jesus being with him, communing with him. We get so distracted by all things. I'm just like you. I get so easily distracted. I am such a loser. Sometimes even I'll be worshiping and I'll have my hands lifted high and I'm just worshiping God and then all of a sudden I'm thinking about dirt biking. And my hands are still high and I'm still singing the words and my mouth is moving and I'm going, oh, I love you, Lord. Oh man, I can't wait to go dirt biking. Should I get a Honda or a Yamaha? What's it go? Oh, I just can't wait. And I go, Lord, what am I doing? It's ridiculous. And then I'll go through a whole day and I'll get to the end of the day and I'll lay down in my bed next to my wife and I'll just remember, I haven't even thought of the Lord all day. I haven't asked the Lord anything all day. I haven't spent any time with Jesus all day. And that's when the enemy comes in and goes, you loser. You scumbag. Look at you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be comforted now by Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Just as a father has compassion on his children, So the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, for He Himself knows what we are made of. He is mindful that we are but dirt. The Lord is not shocked when we are distracted. The Lord is not dismayed. The Lord is not disgusted. The Lord is not done with you. He knows what we are made of. He Himself formed us. He knows that we are but dirt. I am constantly blessed by the fact when I remember that God does not expect too much from me because He knows me. That's why He has placed me in Christ, in His perfect Son, that I don't have to be the perfect Son. But I can be a disciple. I can grow in holiness. I can grow in purity. I can grow in my love for God. I can grow in devotion. I can grow in effectiveness for the kingdom. I can grow in fervency of prayer. I have daily the opportunity, daily the privilege, daily the course set before me to grow in these things. And when I don't, God has compassion upon me because he knows I am but a dirt ball. And he's a loving father. You know our kids. My son, he's three, just turned three on November 11th. Three-year-old. How big is their attention span? Oh, it's not very big at all. (laughs) And I'll try to engage him in conversation. Isaiah, how was your day? Did you have a good day? Yep, Papa. And then I want to ask him the next question, and bam, he's on to Thomas the Choo Choo train, or bam, he's on to watching this, or he's doing that, or he's playing with this, and he's talking about this and that and the other. My heart is not broken. Oh, why didn't he give me attention? He only talked to me for three seconds. I know he's only three years old. God is our father. He knows we're dirt balls. I don't know if I'd be wrong biblically to say that God is pleased to take what he can get from us. But he has enabled us by his Holy Spirit to give more. He's given us the privilege and the honor and the opportunity to be disciples to give a little more, to press a little deeper. To go a little further with him. To be a little more engaged in this thing called Christianity. To make life count for a little more than a job and sometimes church on Sundays. To attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. I'm getting excited about discipleship. Uh, Turn back to Mark. Turn back to Mark. We're almost finished now. Oh, you're in Mark. Praise the Lord. Don't turn anywhere. Stay in Mark. I want you to see that Jesus is summoning these disciples to be with him was a response to the immense pressure that was upon him. I want us to back up to verse 7. And we have in verses 7 to 12 a summation of the previous chapters. Everything that we're going to read right now verses 7 through 12, we've studied at length in the previous weeks. It's a summation of his ministry thus far, but look at how pressure-filled it is. Verse 7 of Mark 3, And Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude heard of all he was doing, and they all came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the multitude, in order that they might not crowd him. "'For he had healed many with the result "'that all of those who had afflictions "'pressed about him in order to touch him. "'And whenever unclean spirits beheld him, "'they would fall down before him and cry out, "'saying, You are the Son of God. "'And he earnestly warned them not to make him known.'" Do you understand this picture of what Jesus, even in his humanity, had to endure? It says that he told his disciples, okay guys, we're here along the Sea of Galilee, you've got to have a boat ready for me. Because I might have to step into this boat lest I am crushed, lest I am overwhelmed with the people. It said that everybody from all those regions who were sick wanted to touch him. Now we're in the midst of flu season, and there's a cold going around, and there's bronchitis going around, and there's sinus infections going around, and can you imagine if every sick and disgusting person in all of Santa Barbara, and Goleta, and Isla Vista, and Carpinteria, and La Cheetah and don't forget Summerlin, and Ventura, and Oxnard, they all wanted to come and touch you with all their cooties. That is what he had to endure. And so he's standing there, he wants to preach the good news of the kingdom, and all these sick and afflicted people are all going, "Jesus, <coughs> Jesus, <coughs> if I could just touch him, <coughs> Jesus, come here." And then these demon-possessed guys are falling down saying, "Ah, oh, He is the Son of God." Ah And this is all going on at once. It's a lot of pressure. He was fully God, the Bible teaches, and yet he was fully man. We're told that one time he got in the boat and a storm came up and he was sleeping and he slept right through the storm. He became tired in his humanity. The pressures and the demands upon his life were immense. And that is the context now for him calling the disciples unto himself. And it says before he did that, that in the midst of that pressure, again, verse 13, He went up on the mountain and we're told in the other gospels that he prayed all night. There is for us there a wonderful picture of the truth of being with God. Jesus has given us an example to follow that when the pressure of life was too much, when there were cooties and demons and everything else, that he went away to be alone with the Father. And there he prayed. That is what we are called to do as disciples. That we are called to get away from the daily life and get alone with God that we might receive strength from his hand. And continually in the uh, gospel accounts, we see Jesus saying to his disciples, come apart with me. You guys, the pressures are great. Come apart with me. And he calls them away to times of solitude. A great preacher of decades past, Vance Havner, says, If we don't follow Christ's example to come apart, we may indeed just come apart. He told his disciples, come apart with me. Let's get away a little bit. Let's be quiet together. Let's receive from the Father. If we don't follow that example in our daily lives, we might ourselves come apart. And he was up on the mountain, again, an example for us. There he was praying all night long. Now it goes without saying it's very simple and yet it's very true that if the Son of God had to spend the night in prayer, how much more do you and I? If the Son of God had to spend the whole night communing with the Father, how much more you and I need to spend time in prayer? There's a Christian of, I don't know, more decades past. His name is George MacDonald. And someone once asked him this question. If God loves us so much, and knows everything we need before we ask, why must we pray? If he loves us so much, he knows everything that we need before we ask, why do we even have to ask? And George MacDonald of Godly Wisdom said this: What if God knows prayer to be the thing we need first and foremost? What if the main object in God's idea of prayer is the supplying of our great and endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help to drive us to God? Communion with God is a one need of the soul beyond all other needs. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is just the motive of that prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with God, our eternal need. Do you see that? Why does He command that we pray? Because if He didn't command it, we would never do it. Why does He allow into our lives great and Amazing needs that aren't met even though he knows that we have need of these things because they drive us to prayer which is communion with God speaking to God and that is exactly where he wants us to be that is why I often tell Christians I don't care what you pray just pray I don't think it matters what you pray you can pray the dumbest thing in the world the father just wants to hear from you he just wants you to commune with him and prayer is the beginning of communing with God it is just the beginning of drawing near to Him. That is why, Christians, we build community here. It is so important that we have the common goal of prayer and that we have accountability in prayer. That is why it is important that we commit with one another to nurture and cultivate a life of individual prayer and a life of corporate prayer. That is why it is my prayer that the whole congregation would show up at 8.30 on Sunday mornings when we pray together that the whole congregation would come at six on Wednesday evenings when we pray together. Because a family that prays together stays together, I once heard. (laughs) It is the beginning of communing with God. And the wonderful thing about communing with God, about being with Him, is this. As we do it, everything else falls in place. As we commune with God and seek God and spend time with Him, everything else falls in place. Everything else is the outflow of that. Jesus said it something like this. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Paul said it something like this in Galatians chapter 5. The flesh wages war against the spirit, but walk according to the spirit, and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. And then he said the fruit or the natural forthcomings of walking with the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and oh, don't forget, self-control. That as we engage in the Spirit-filled life, and Paul said it something like this in Ephesians, be continually filled with the Spirit of God. Literally in the Greek, be being filled with the Spirit of God. As we ask him and allow him to continually fill us with the spirit and we commune with him, the fruit of the spirit comes forth from our life. All those other things flow out as a natural outflow. And the second reality of discipleship simply happens. And that is preaching for Jesus. The second thing he said he would require of the disciples is that they would preach for him. He would send them out to preach. Now, Every disciple of Jesus Christ is called to preach. Let's strip away the connotations. I'm preaching right now, but not every disciple is called to do it this way. It simply means to herald or to proclaim the good news. Don't think it means that you have to stand behind a pulpit. Don't think it means you need to be eloquent. Don't think it means you need to have a three-point or a 20-point sermon or whatever it is, God forbid. Don't think it means any of those things. It is simply to declare the good news to herald, to tell people about the plan of salvation of God in Christ Jesus. Now, as you commune with the Lord, as you are with Him, as you exalt Him to supremacy in your life, allow Him to be enthroned in your life, and you suppress or deny yourself, the natural outflow of that is telling people about Jesus. Nobody has ever had to coerce me into preaching. Nobody has ever had to... Well, Fritz twisted my arm a little bit one time. Fritz and Penny did. But there hasn't had to be much convincing on my part as I just begin to read the Bible and fall in love with God. The natural outflow of my life was, I want to tell people about this Jesus. I want to tell them. And so it will be in your lives as you endeavor to be disciples. The first, being with him, you must do. You must press into that. That requires some discipline and some doing and some thought. The second is the natural outflow preaching for him is just going to come forth from your life as the Lord leads. It's not always like this. Might just be sharing a little bit with some people in your family, a little bit here and there, but we are all blessed and privileged to do that. It was the sole ministry of Christ Jesus until this moment in history. And then he shared it with his disciples. This amazing good news about which the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom He is well pleased. This amazing thing we have been invited into participation with. And the last is authority. We have been given as believers in Christ Jesus His authority to act on His behalf. His authority in the spiritual realm. You could get the CD. We talked about this in weeks past at some length. The authority of the believer. But let me just say this concerning it this morning. We are called not just to be with him, not to just preach for him, but to act in his name. It says there by the casting out of demons and I would add obviously by opposing evil. Disciples are not simply defined by what they stand for. But disciples of Jesus Christ are defined by what they stand against. And this is how we use the authority given to us as children of the Most High God, as believers and disciples of Jesus Christ. We stand against evil in our town. You, Christian, you, disciple, have been commissioned, appointed, and anointed by God to stand against evil in your life, in your family, in your town. Amen. You have been, we have been appointed to do so. If we, the disciples of Christ Jesus in carpentry and on this coastline, do not stand firm against the schemes of the enemy, do not tear down speculations and every lofty thing that would exalt themselves against the knowledge of God, If we don't enlarge the shield of faith, if we don't yield the sword of the Spirit, who's going to do it? If we don't stand on the solid rock of Christ Jesus and plead His blood over our families and our lives and our community, then by golly, who will do it? It is your responsibility. It is your privilege. It is your joy. It is our honor. And I would ask you this morning, will you be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And be with him and preach for him and wield the authority of him. Father, we long that you would make us a church of disciples. God, you know my fear that we would just come in here and play church. You're calling us to so much more. What a privilege, what an honor, what a joy. So many blessings and truly following you. As we follow you, you'll take us up on the mountain and you'll take us down in the valley and you'll lead us beside still water and into green grassy pastures as we follow you. Life will be wonderful and blessed and yet life will be difficult and challenging and overwhelming, but through it all, God, you are faithful. And I long and desire that you would give us here now at reality a church of disciples. That we would shun mere watered down Christianity as we often see it today. That we would shun easy believism. And we would press in to the realness of you, O God. Do this work in our hearts you have got to do it. You, Lord, must now cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Whom have we in heaven but you? We would confess corporately our lack of love for you, and yet we would also express our desire to love you and to know you more. And so teach us to love you Teach us to be with you daily. If you just want to, at the beginning or the end of this year, almost the beginning of the next year, if you want to be prayed for, that this year might be the year that you truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ, I would have you just stand up where you are, if that's your heart's desire. If you want to be a disciple this year, stand up where you are. Put a hand on the person next to you on their shoulder. Lord, here we are fearfully and humbly making a confession before you that we truly want to be disciples of you, Christ Jesus. We're fully aware of our lack. We're fully aware that we are but dust. But we know that, God, you are compassionate. And we know that on the day of Pentecost, you have empowered us with the Holy Spirit, with power from on high, to be your witnesses here in our community. And we ask now that you would make us disciples, that we would experience the reality and the fullness in our lives of being with you and preaching for you and being commissioned to have and act in authority on your behalf. Here we are, God. We stand before you humbly saying, make us such things. Just ask the Lord to fall afresh upon us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples there to wait in Jerusalem, to tarry there until they have received power from on high. He said, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you will receive power to be my witnesses. God, we need a fresh filling of that power today fall upon us, Spirit. Sing this song, make it your request, ask the Lord to fall afresh upon you and our congregation and our community.